Well, we are in First Peter chapter 4, as you know, and we are currently in a section of practical exhortation by the Apostle Peter, as directed by the Spirit of God. Peter, like Paul, adds practical exhortation to his doctrine, but Peter, unlike Paul, tends to mix his together, a short section of doctrine with followed by a short section of exhortation, another section of doctrine followed by another section of exhortation, whereas the Apostle Paul is more inclined to give us a large section of doctrine and then an extended section of application. We need to keep the context in mind as we look at our text today in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. Peter has emphasized the reality of suffering, that it is not outside the will of God that we suffer, but rather is appointed by God for his wise and gracious purposes. And we need to keep in mind the reality of Christ's return, that Christ is coming someday, and many things are involved in his coming, but one is a time of accountability. And we shall be judged when the Lord returns. And so we need, therefore, Peter tells us, to guard our relationship with the Lord. And the primary tool that he gives us for that in this passage is prayer, to remain prayerful so that we might remain close to the Lord in the light of his soon return. And then secondly, we are to develop expressions of love toward one another. For love, as Peter told us, covers a multitude of sins. Love is a great oil that greases the machinery of human relationships and enables the body of Christ to enjoy unity and peace and harmony and effectiveness as we rub shoulders together day by day in our church relationships. But he does not stop with simply telling us that we ought to love, but he also gives us some practical guidelines of how to love. We are not left to simply conjure up in our own minds how we think love ought to operate, how we want to demonstrate our love to one another, although there are general principles in God's Word that do allow us a great deal of flexibility in finding ways to love one another. But in addition to whatever appropriate ways we might come up with, Peter, by the Spirit of God, is going to suggest two very practical and very definite ones to us. And they are, number one, the exercise of hospitality, and number two, the exercise of spiritual gifts. And these are expressions of love. These are ways to demonstrate Christian love in action. And that's why we read in verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so hospitality as an expression of love and exercising spiritual gifts as an exercise of Christian love. So first of all, hospitality is an expression of love. Again, verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. What is hospitality? The word, philoxenoi, means literally to love strangers. Philos, the noun, phileo, the verb, is one of the words in the New Testament that is used for love. Not agapao, the most common word, but this one is most often used in compound nouns. 
Philadelphia, the love of the brothers, and other forms of phileo. And here it is combined with the word stranger, love of strangers, and is translated as hospitality, and it means hospitality as it was used in the Greek language. I probably don't need to tell you that there was great emphasis placed upon the exercise of hospitality in Middle Eastern culture. Hospitality, which was understood as a practical concern for strangers in offering them food and shelter. Because primarily the public inns in that day were not safe. They were known for drunkenness and immorality and theft and bodily injury. And you would not want people to stay there, particularly if they were the people of God. You recall that Christ commended hospitality on more than one occasion. When he was having a feast, he said to him who had invited him in Luke 14, 12, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There's hospitality as an expression of love for Christ and love for others. And as you know, in that great section in Matthew chapter 25, when Christ is talking about the day of judgment and how he's going to evaluate people, and we read in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for... I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. That's a description of hospitality. Food, drink, and shelter offered to a stranger. Christ commended that. In fact, he said that was a mark of his people. In the early church, strangers who traveled through the territories where the churches were found were generally introduced by a letter of commendation from their home church and from Christian leaders that would no doubt have been known to the church where they were traveling, a practice which has largely been lost today along with so many other of the things, the valuable things that have been lost as we have seemingly lost our understanding of churches and church membership and church fellowship and church interaction and how all of this worked in the first century and in the New Testament church. But these traveling people, traveling Christians from place to place, were very valuable to tie churches together through service and communication to be able to provide information as to what was going on in the church that they had come from and even other churches that they had visited along the way. And by this means, the body of Christ was tied together in mutual love and labors for the Lord. And, of course, the extension of hospitality to traveling Christians as they went from place to place is what made missionary work possible because these many times were evangelists or missionaries who were traveling to areas that did not have churches, but along the way they would stop and they would receive the hospitality of churches in this town before they went into another town to pursue their ministry. In some parts of the Roman world, by as early as 100 A.D., 
some regulations had been applied to the act of hospitality to restrict the uh, offer of of, uh, lodging and food to a maximum of of three days. And after that, the person who was being offered hospitality was expected either to move on or if he was going to settle down in the area to obtain work and to support himself. But hospitality is a form of giving. There are more ways to give than simply to drop our offerings in the offering plate or whatever receptacle is uh, used in our places of worship. And like in the Old Testament, the only giving was not simply the tithe. There were other offerings and ways to give that were specified as well. So likewise in the New Testament, there's not only the giving of our finances, our, our gifts of money, But there are also other forms of giving, and hospitality is one of them. Extending food, extending time, extending labor to others as a way of serving the Lord. To whom is hospitality extended? Well, the word, as we have seen, at its root means love of strangers. And so strangers certainly have to be included in whatever is our understanding of hospitality. A stranger would presumably be someone who is unknown personally to you. However, we also note that Peter lays great stress here upon one another. That's in verses 8 and 9 and 10. And this is one of those many one-anothering passages in the New Testament. He said in verse 8, Above all things have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so Peter seems to be thinking more in terms of hospitality within the local body. Members of the church ministering to one another in the local body in this act of hospitality. And so I think we recognize that there are different ways to extend hospitality. It is certainly not only lodging and food that is extended to strangers who are traveling through the area, but it's also a ministry to those who live in our area, who are members of our church and who are part of our body, and they become fitting objects of hospitality as well. Hospitality, therefore, should be extended to those who may be unknown personally to the church, but recommended to the church by others in other churches whom we and our church know. Or it can be extended to strangers in the sense of those who are known to our church, but may be unknown personally to you as an individual member of the church. It's a good way to get to know people. Or, in many cases, it's hospitality extended to members of the church who are known to you, but they are beyond your circle of family, immediate or extended, and your close friends. It requires you reaching out a little bit further than that to invite people into your home that perhaps, if you haven't become accustomed to this, you don't feel very comfortable doing that at this stage in your life. Maybe your comfort zone only allows you to invite into your home those who are your family, those who are your close friends. But the New Testament instructs us to get beyond that, quite a bit beyond that, and to extend this kind of hospitality to others as well. 
It probably would be appropriate to say that hospitality can fall into the category of both Christian hospitality as well as evangelistic hospitality. Though Peter is obviously emphasizing Christian hospitality in this text. But Christian hospitality would be ministering to other Christians as a way of ministering to Christ. Remember Jesus said, "You, when you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. They said, when did we find you in need of, of shelter and food and clothing? When did we find you a stranger and take you in? And Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. But there are also opportunities to extend hospitality evangelistically for the sake of the gospel and to invite neighbors and friends and others into your home who don't know the Lord for the purpose of establishing relationships with them and showing them kindness and and developing uh, conversations with them and letting them know that even though you are a Christian, you're not some kind of a weird person that they can't relate to, that they can't talk to. And this can be a beachhead for evangelism, very effective evangelism. And when I wrap all these things together, I realize that Peter probably doesn't mean that we are to be extending hospitality to total strangers. That is, not only those who aren't known to us, but they aren't known to our church. They aren't known to the leaders in our church. They aren't known to anybody else that we know. That probably wouldn't be safe. I don't recommend that you pick up hitchhikers and take them home for hospitality. Let them stay in your in your home overnight. That's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about those that may be strangers to us, but there are recommendations and ways that we can know them and recognize that they're not a threat to us. And we can very much minister to them, extending hospitality as a way of serving Christ and serving others and serving Christ in one of the ways that he told us he wants to be served. In our day, missionaries traveling through very much fit this category, as well as traveling preachers and perhaps musicians. We have a wonderful opportunity in our church because, as you know, our minister of music and his family travel every week from another state to come and to minister to us and to be with us. It's an amazing thing that has been going on now for 24-plus years. And that, of course, is only possible because of the hospitality of the homes that are opened to the Phillips family on weekends. And if you are not willing or able to do that, then we couldn't have them here. This is a, a very practical expression of 21st century hospitality. And from time to time, not very often, but from time to time, we might have in other groups of musicians a choir that comes to sing for us or whatever. And sometimes we ask you to provide hospitality for them overnight. That would be a very fitting application of what Peter is talking about. Back in the month of November, on a Sunday night, we saw a family in our church that was visiting, unknown to us, and some of us began to talk to them and introduce ourselves to them and found out that they were a missionary family traveling through. And they had... um, They were actually from Texas, and in the morning they had been ministering in a church in South Carolina, and they were on, I think, their way to Maryland, some some state north of us, and were traveling up the highway, and it was time for church, and they just pulled over and I guess looked in the yellow pages and found a church that they thought would be somewhat comparable to what they were accustomed to worshiping in, and they came in and sat down and, and were in our service, and I asked them what they were planning 
to do what what their schedule was, and they said, well, they were going to get back in the car and get back on the road and drive all through the night to get to their destination. And I said, why are you going where are you going? Well, we've got a wedding coming up this weekend, so it was obvious they didn't need to be there at 9 o'clock in the morning. So uh, this obviously would seem to be an opportunity, in fact, really a, a, a ministry of hospitality. And um, when I asked them to join my wife and I and some other missionaries that we had at that time for supper after after church that night. We enjoyed a time of fellowship, and then I began to inquire about lodging and see if they would, wouldn't prefer to stay rather than get back on the road and found out that another family in our church had already extended hospitality to them and made arrangements for them to come and spend the night with them. That's exactly, exactly what Peter's talking about here. Exactly. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. For nearly two years, we had a family that lived 90 miles away from Burlington and faithfully got up early on Sunday morning, leaving their home sometime after 7 o'clock so that they could worship with us at the 9 o'clock service. I never saw them late. They were here before many of our people who lived just down the street, always here in time and refreshed and ready and sitting in the auditorium and worshiping with us and did that for nearly two years until last year as gas prices continued to rise and rise and rise and got up to about $4 a gallon, they finally decided that the Lord was leading them to find something closer to home, even though they had already looked a long time and had not really found exactly what they were looking for. Our family had the privilege on two or three occasions, to have them into our home for a Sunday noon meal and to fellowship with them, to minister to them, to uh, get to know them better in that way. And I know one or two of you who did the same. But I was hoping that more would perhaps do that. Their, their usual practice was to leave the service and go to K&W Cafeteria and eat their lunch, and then they would get in their car and drive back home, 90 miles back home. And they did that. As I say, for nearly two years, I expect they worshipped with us in that way regularly, faithfully, 80 or 90 times. And out of that 80 or 90 times, I just wonder how many times anyone did extend hospitality to them. And if it was in measure as perhaps would have been pleasing to the Lord. It's a real ministry that is commended to us by Christ and by the apostles of Christ. Hospitality, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling because, of course, it does require some effort and, and we don't like extra work. We don't like extra effort. We don't like to have to scramble, but, but uh, it does require that at times. Of course, there are ways to demonstrate hospitality that don't necessarily involve lodging. Our people are very good to prepare meals when people are sick or when there are funerals and are very commendable and exemplary in that area. And I commend you for it and thank God for you and your demonstrations of hospitality in that way. But Peter is very clear that not only ought we to exercise hospitality, but we need to do it with the right attitude, without grumbling, a word that means muttering, low speaking, speaking under your breath. We are to offer it not grudgingly. We're not to consider it an unbearable intrusion into our privacy, into our comfort zone, into our time and schedule and our energies. In fact, I'm confident the Bible teaches us that 
exercising hospitality is really a mark of Christian maturity. That would be indicated when we find out that bishops, as they're called in 1 Timothy 3, and elders, as they're called in Titus chapter 1, are to be people of hospitality as a, as a qualifying factor. They shouldn't even be selected if they haven't demonstrated this. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, apt to teach. And Paul to Titus puts it this way in Titus 1.7, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. And so I take it, therefore, that hospitality is a mark of spiritual maturity. And if a man is not prone to hospitality, does not show a willingness and a, a pattern of, of extending hospitality, then he doesn't actually qualify for the office of a pastor. And yet the Bible also makes it clear that this is not to be restricted to pastors and to those that are considered of great spiritual, of great spiritual maturity. Do you remember that when Paul was giving regulations for the widows who were supported by the church, he gave several qualifications for those who would be offered financial help by the church. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty high standard, actually, that, that Paul gives to us. And one of those was that she was a woman who extended hospitality when she had that ability to do that. We read in 1 Timothy 5, 9, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Did you catch that? If she has lodged strangers. That's exactly the concept of hospitality. That's exactly what Peter's talking about and what Paul is talking about and what Christ is talking about. If she extended hospitality, if she lodged strangers, then when her time of need comes, then the church should help her financially. And according to the instructions of Timothy, if she didn't, then the church should not. The church is as much instructed not to help certain people as it is to help certain people, and sometimes we lose sight of that, and we need to recognize that. But the point is that hospitality was certainly not required only of pastors, but it was required of all believers. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 12:13, when he says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cleave to what is good, be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. All of these instructions are for all of God's people. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. A cheerful willingness to do this, recognizing that it is draining on time and energy and resources and sometimes pushes us beyond our comfort zone. But what the Bible teaches us all throughout is that our common faith ought to unite us more than our differences divide us. The body of Christ is made up of all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of personalities and all kinds of differences. 
And so often, way too often, we let our uneasinesses and our lack of comfort and, and familiarity keep us at arm's distance and divide us when our common faith in Christ ought to be drawing us closer together. It ought to be uniting us. And hospitality is one way, if not the primary way, where this is done. And so the principle of Christian stewardship, that we're responsible to minister that which God entrusts into our care, instructs us to extend hospitality. But here the emphasis is upon love, and Peter tells us that Christian love instructs us to extend hospitality. And love, as we know, is seeking the welfare of others as much as our own, seeking the comfort of others as much as our own. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Has God provided you with a comfortable home? Has God provided you with an adequate income? Then what reason would you give for not exercising hospitality? What biblical reason would you give for not exercising hospitality? Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. But there's a second exercise of love, and that's the one in verse 10. Exercising spiritual gifts as an expression of love. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards, as the manifold grace of God. Spiritual gifts. The Greek word is charisma. It comes from the Greek word charis, which means grace, as therefore the idea of a gift. It's the same word that is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14, that extended section on spiritual gifts, and that's why I call it spiritual gifts, because of the word that is used, charisma. Even though Peter doesn't say spiritual, he just says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. But by the selection of the word used and where it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, he's obviously talking about what we generally call spiritual gifts. And there are several lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. One is in Romans chapter 12 that I read earlier, because that chapter, like this one in Peter, combines both instructions for spiritual gifts as well as instructions for hospitality. So it was a very suitable parallel passage to read this morning. Uh, there, are, there are lists of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, both at the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, two separate lists. And many people consider the list in Ephesians 4.11 to be another list of spiritual gifts as well as the two that are mentioned in 1 Peter 4.11, the verse after our text for today. If you would take all of these lists and lay them down side by side in the various gifts that are listed there, you will find out that no two lists are alike. You'll find that there is no one gift that's on every one of the lists. You will find that there is no one list that includes all of the gifts that are mentioned in various lists when you collate them and put them all together. And therefore, we would conclude that even when you put them all together, probably that is not an exhaustive list. Nobody is endeavoring to list all possible gifts. But in each place where gifts are listed, the idea is to understand how this works, understand how God has gifted everyone, understand some of the gifts and some of the categories of gifts so that you can understand what the Scripture is talking about. 
There probably are many other gifts, an endless variety that are not mentioned in the scriptures at all, such as the gift of music or the gift of art, which aren't mentioned there. But if God has given you the gift of music, then you should utilize it to minister to the body. If God has given you the gift to paint or to do artwork in various ways, then undoubtedly God gave that to you so that you can minister it for the use of the body of Christ. What we do understand by studying all these lists of gifts is that everyone's gift or gifts, I think really plural is is appropriate, but we can concentrate on one at a time, but everyone's gifts are unique. There are no two that are alike, like fingerprints, like snowflakes, no two that are alike. And because that's true, then they're not easily categorized. That's why you don't find one list that includes everything, or one list that gives you a certain categories that you can stick everything under those categories. The lists are all different because the gifts are so so inexhaustible, really. In fact, that's, that's indicated by verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, the many-faceted grace of God, the... the uh, Endless variety in which God, through His grace, ministers these gifts to His people. And so no two people are going to have the same gift or combinations of gifts. And even when two people have similar gifts, such as one has a gift of teaching and another has a gift of teaching, they're not going to be the same. They're not going to sound the same. They're not going to have have that gift in exactly the same way. Everybody's going to be different. Different teachers have different styles and different emphases and different effects upon the body of Christ. And all of that by Christ's design. That's why it's so so sinful and so carnal and immature to pick out your favorite teacher, as the Christians did in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Well, I'm a Paul. I like his style. Well, I'm a Apollos. I like his style. He's more of an orator. Well, I'm a Cephas. I like him. I, I like his fire. I like his zeal, the way he pounds the pulpit. And... Uh, I'm of Christ, the pious ones, you know. And uh, Paul said, cut it out. All of you are wrong. God has given variety. God's given different preachers, different teachers with different styles and different emphases and different ways of organizing material and different ways of ministering to the body of Christ. And it's all used for the benefit of the body of Christ. And we're not supposed to pick out our favorites and line up behind them and divide over that as we so often do in our immaturity. But what are these gifts? Well, they are, in short, divine enablement for ministry. A spiritual gift is any talent or ability empowered by the Spirit of God to be used in the ministry of the church. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Each one, emphatic, Every member has a gift, probably more than one, but every member has at least a gift. Each one, and that's emphatic in the the Greek text, each one, everyone, absolutely every member of the body has one or more gifts to be used for the glory of God. You say, what is my gift and when did I receive it? That's for you to figure out uh, what it is. And as far as when you received it, this text doesn't tell us. It just tells us that it's sometime in the past. Each one has received a gift that has been bestowed by grace. 
Some teach that these gifts are given at the time of regeneration. I don't think that's probably correct, though they some could be. And I think that would actually be rare. But I think these are given to us in our birth, in our conception. And God gives us the gifts, the talents, the abilities that he wants us to have even before we're born. He designs us for that, and those are given to us in our birth. But it is in the second birth that they now are are energized by the Spirit of God, as they were not before. And now we have instructions to use them for the glory of God and for the benefit of God's people, which we didn't understand before and had no desire for, even if we had some inkling of it. And now suddenly we have a purpose and a goal in life and a, and a reason to use our gifts and a way to use them productively for the honor and glory of God. And that, of course, all cut happens at the time of regeneration, when we are born again by the Spirit of God. And when we're born again, then God begins to take all of those abilities and talents which he designed into us from birth and to direct them for ministry in the body of Christ. So in regard to these gifts which are bestowed by God, they're given by his grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. He, he decides what the gift will be. He decides which one he's going to give to who and in what measure and in what, what blend and what variety. That's by God's sovereign choice. We don't choose that. We can't create these gifts. We can't claim these gifts. I want that one. I'm going to claim it in the name of Jesus. No. You're trying to take a prerogative that God reserves unto himself. What we need to do is recognize our gifts and utilize our gifts. Develop them and utilize them for the glory of God. As God shows us, as we grow in grace and and knowledge and understanding, we learn more of who we are and how God has made us, and we recognize what gifts God has given us, and then we find ways to utilize them in the body of Christ, and we try to develop them further for the glory of God. And so there is to be an exercise of these spiritual gifts. Verse 10 tells us, As each one has received a gift, minister it. Minister it to one another. Minister it. That's a Greek word that comes from the word Deacon, which in its verb form means to serve. Diakonuntes is the form found here. It means ministry service. Serve it. As each one has received a gift, deke it, we could say. Not in the formal official sense of deacons, the office, but in the informal sense of what underlies that office. It's an office of service to the church. But you see, all the members of the church are to be serving the church with whatever gifts God has given you. So as each one has received a gift, serve it to one another. Serve it. Deek it to one another in the body of Christ. There is proportionality. As each one has received. That reminds me of what Paul said about the offering in 1 Corinthians 16.1, remember? Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I gave orders to the churches of Galatia, so also do you, you on the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered. Everybody doesn't lay by the same amount. Everybody isn't going to give the same amount because it all depends on how God has prospered you. But in proportion to how God has prospered you, that's how you are to give. And the same idea is found here. 
in proportion to how God has gifted you. That's how you are to serve. As each one has received. There's a relationship here. There's a proportionality here. Your service is determined by the nature of the gift or gifts that you have received. Don't wish you had another person's responsibilities or opportunities because you probably have not been gifted the way they have. And if you have, God will open up other similar opportunities for you, but they won't be identical. I see functionality here. This is an interrelationship to one another. To one another. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Great emphasis upon that all throughout the New Testament. The idea here is the one that we find in Ephesians chapter 4. And I'll read two verses out of chapter 4 of Ephesians. Verse 11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. I'll read verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then add verse 16, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Same idea. Every member ministering to the body in some way. Every member ministering to the body according to how God designed you, how God made you, how God gifted you. What opportunities God has given to you. According to that, then you are to minister to the body. And when everybody's doing that, then the body is so beautifully woven and knit together and ministering to itself. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful ministry and it does build up the body. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that ministering This way, exercising our spiritual gifts benefits the body, but he follows that up by showing us that failing to exercise our spiritual gifts impoverishes the body. Extended passage on that. All the excuses that people give. He says, not everybody's an eye, not everybody's a leg, and not everybody's an arm. And what would happen if the eye would say, well, because I'm not a foot, the body has no need of me. And what if the foot would say, because I'm not an eye, the body has no need of me, and so forth. And what is that but just talking about the the uh, tendency of some people to not do what the Scripture teaches us to do, and in that way to deprive the body of Christ from the benefit of the gifts that God gave you, God who made you, God who saved you, God who called you to himself, God who placed you within the body of Christ, has has designed you for the way he wants you to minister within the body, and he's designed it in such a way that the body needs your contribution and will be impoverished without it. And so we minister these gifts as an act of devotion, an expression of love, love to Christ and love to others. We have to be careful that we don't minister or exercise our spiritual gifts as an expression of pride, as an expression of self-advancement, a desire for attention to ourselves. But the exercise of love, which is desire for the good of the loved object, will not allow us to withhold 
the exercise of spiritual gifts. Love will not allow us to be too busy to exercise our spiritual gifts. Love will not allow us to be too shy to exercise our spiritual gifts. Love will not allow us to be too unconnected to the body, the visible body of Christ, to be able to exercise our spiritual gifts. Whatever is holding you back from exercising the gifts that God has given to you, get it fixed. Get that problem fixed so that you can enter in to what the Scripture is teaching us here and can minister to Christ, to His body. That's the way He wants us to minister to Him. And furthermore, there's an unintended benefit when we do this. Minister to one another. You can't see this in the English, but in the Greek it's a reflexive construction. And what that means is that what benefits others has a reflexive benefit for ourselves. We don't do it for self-benefit. That wouldn't be love. That would be selfish. We do it to benefit others. But guess what? There's a benefit for us in return. Unsurprisingly, when we exercise our spiritual gifts as unto Christ and for the benefit of others, we grow, we develop, we are blessed, we receive many benefits, we receive a richer return of ministry coming to us. How powerful the church would be if every member eagerly exercised his gifts for the benefit of the body. Can you imagine what an effective church that would be where everybody was doing that can you imagine what a powerful testimony in the community that church would communicate where every member was doing this and we need to because don't forget there is accountability for the exercise of our gifts as we each one has received a gift minister to one another as good stewards as good stewards What is a steward? A steward is a manager, not an owner. A steward is one who is placed in charge of his master's possessions to use them for his benefit. A steward is one who is given great latitude and authority in his stewardship. And sometimes that causes us to think that they're ours and not his. And sometimes that causes us to think that the day of accountability is not coming, but it is. But a steward is one who is going to face strict accountability, and we must not forget this. Jesus told the parable of an unrighteous steward in Luke chapter 16. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Well, that's what Peter's teaching us here. The Lord is returning, and we're going to give an accountability to him. So exercise your spiritual gifts as good stewards, as excellent stewards, as faithful stewards, as you will wish you had been when you stand before the Lord someday. Because when we use our spiritual gifts for Christ, which is for the benefit of His body, that's how, he, how, we, how we minister them, for Christ, how we use them for Him, how we glorify Christ with them. That's what we're learning over and over and over. When we use our gifts for Christ, that is to benefit others in the body of Christ, we can be certain 
that the Lord will be pleased and we will hear his well done someday. And we can also be certain, as long as we are on the, on the earth, the resources that we expend for the glory of Christ will be replenished by our master who has an inexhaustible store. With a master like this, why would we ever think that we can get ahead by failing to give, whether we're talking about giving in hospitality or giving of ourselves in ministry or whatever it may be, how can we think that we'll ever get ahead by failing to give when we have a master who is going to continue to replenish the resources he places in our hands according to our faithful use of them? If we're using them properly, that's, what, that's exactly what he wants us to do. That's what he's told us to do. So what's he going to do? He's going to give us more that we might use more properly, biblically, scripturally. For his glory. We don't get ahead by withdrawing, saying, well, I can't do that. I, I couldn't, couldn't afford that. I, I, I can't do that. It's because you don't that you can't. You understand? It's because you don't that you can't. If you did, you could. You see? That's God's way. And so with Christ's Return in view, the judgment seat of Christ and the day of accountability that is coming to all of us. We want to make sure that we use our days upon the earth wisely as Christ wills. We don't know how many days we have upon the earth, but however many we have, every one of them is to be used for the glory of Christ, a stewardship for him. And that means using them in the way that he tells us to, not in our own independent, personal, ignoring the word of God sort of way, but in the way that he tells us to. And here he tells us to exercise hospitality in the interest of Christ's kingdom and to exercise spiritual gifts to minister to the body of Christ in the interest of Christ's kingdom. And if we do that, we'll be profitable servants. Good stewards. We'll hear a well done, thou good and faithful servant. And this is the way that we demonstrate our love to Christ, by demonstrating our love to others in this manner. Shall we pray? Father, help us to grow in our love toward you. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Oh, how we thank you for your love to us. How great it is, we could never say enough about it. And we thank you, Father, for the ability you have given us to love others. And we have been greatly blessed as we have learned to to exercise love toward others. And yet, O Lord, we realize that we can always grow and expand and improve. And we thank you for showing us in such practical ways how to do that. And now, O Lord, we pray that you will help us to take what we have learned from your word and put it into action in our lives in a very practical and Christ-honoring, God-loving, and neighbor-loving way. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.